if a judge in a courtroom hearing looked at you as the defendant and said, okay, I know for a fact that you did it, but I'm willing to overlook it. So my ruling is I find you not guilty. Knowing that he was right, that you, you did the crime, how would you feel though to know that it had been completely forgiven? This is the Reology Podcast. My name is Scott Johnson. I don't have degrees in theology or the Bible. I'm just a regular guy who loves and follows God, but wanted to know if there was more to what I was experiencing in the world of Christianity, and more specifically, the church. This podcast is the collection of a journey to dig much deeper into the realm of faith, and reology itself is the study of the do-over, and it's founded on the philosophy and principle of stopping and thinking of what we're doing and why we're doing it, especially when it comes to what I know about God, Jesus, and ultimately what this all has to do with me. In the book of Matthew in the New Testament, there is a situation that is recorded from Jesus' time with his disciples, or we can just call them students, since that's what the word disciple means. These 12 guys, they were just ordinary dudes, and they really didn't have any massive biblical education except for the one that all Hebrew boys received when they were young, and that's all they got, which was primarily just the basics of their heritage, which meant, you know, who is God? What does he want? And that how that affected them, which, by the way, this is also called theology. Now, they had grown up knowing that God had a kingdom in mind that he wanted to rebuild using a specific chosen one or chosen vessel or a chosen king. And we know that to be, obviously, Jesus. Most people probably all Hebrew Jews, I would guess, believed that this kingdom that God had in mind to bring and to rebuild would be one of a physical, earthly type of kingdom, a kingdom that they'd kind of experienced before. And this specific chosen one, this king, well, they imagined that, well, if we're going to get an earthly physical kingdom, we're going to need an earthly physical king. So they felt like this chosen one would be a real physical king as well. So the 12 disciples, the 12 students, they thought exactly the same way. And matter of fact, they were constantly trying to figure out the right time and the right place to actually anoint and crown Jesus as that earthly king. They were also constantly thinking about what role each of them would play in this new kingdom. And they jockeyed constantly for positions of importance, of power. So here in chapter 18 of Matthew, they're doing it again. They come to Jesus to ask this oh-so-very-very-very-important question, which is, Jesus, who would you say, in your opinion, would be considered the greatest in this new kingdom that you're coming to build? Basically, they're looking for the requirements. What's the, what's the, what's the requirements of this new job? You know, hoping that they matched up. As they're interested in filling the bill, and they want to apply for open positions. But instead of getting their answer, Jesus starts teaching about words like sacrifice and selflessness. And more specifically here that I'd like to focus on, he starts telling them this story in verse 23. Jesus says that this new kingdom of heaven is like a king who calls in all of those in the kingdom who owes him money. And this would have been a situation of a bondservant 
A bondservant in those days would have been a person who is enslaved to the authority because of their debt. And at any time, they can be called upon to serve because of that debt. The king is calling these people in because he wants to settle his debts. And he calls in one specific guy, Jesus says, who owes the king an equivalent of 6,000 times one day's wage. So let's say like for today and in our time here in America, let's say you've got a, a, 20, a job that, that, you, that you get paid $20 an hour. You work eight hours a day. So at that rate, you're going to get paid $160 every day. That would be a day's wage. Now we take that in this situation and we times it by 6,000 and you get $960,000. And that's almost a million bucks. And as you can imagine, it's a lot now. It was a lot then. Here's the question. How could a normal worker, though, just a regular person, repay that much money? I mean, if, if in our society here in America, in the 21st century, if you got a letter saying you owed $960,000, you would immediately thinking to yourself, there's obviously no way I can pay this. What can I do? For Americans, we have the bankruptcy protection for every human being, every citizen in our country, and we can use that to clear our debts. But let's say that your debt came from the IRS, which doesn't, you know, the bankruptcy laws don't apply to, to IRS government type of debts. You are now facing a debt that, quite honestly, you'll be paying on for the rest of your life and maybe even then some. Basically, it's a debt that you could never, ever, ever repay. So this man here who just has, has come before the king, he throws himself at the mercy of the king. He begs and he pleads for mercy. He states that, hey, I'll do whatever I possibly can to repay the money somehow. And after hearing this, the king actually has compassion on this guy. He actually is moved by this man coming and throwing himself at his mercy. He seems to be super sorry for the, the situation he's in. So the king has moved to the point where he actually wipes the debt away. Almost a million dollars he completely wipes off the book. So this guy has literally hit the lottery. His ship has come in. This incredibly heavy weight, this this burden that's been around his neck forever has, has, has instantly been lifted off. And he walks out a new man. Or does he? You know, the main factor of this story, of something I really want to focus on, is the, the, the position of the king. He's the guy who's got the power. And he is the ultimate judge. He's got the power to either do one of two things. To either convict or acquit. And that power sits firmly in his palm and only his palm. There's a word for this judgment that releases someone from the wrong, and that word in our Bibles is the word righteous. Now, some words in our modern world, they just don't quite have the same effect as they did in another time or another place. And it kind of makes it difficult to really understand what exactly is going on. The word righteous or even the word righteousness 
they're kind of a, it's kind of a biblical word. And I say that because it's all throughout the Bible. And it's also what I might call a leftover word. It's a word that was used hundreds of years ago. And in a Bible translation, let's say like the King James Version. And it's actually been continued to be used in other, maybe even more recent translations of the Bible. It would have been a culturally relevant word at the time, but for us here in America, maybe not so much. I mean, it's still an English word, and it's one that we kind of use, but not very much. We recognize it. It is English, but honestly, we just don't really have a a great grasp of its actual meaning or how it relates to us in our personal world. I mean, seriously, it wasn't too long ago when the word righteous was associated with a teenage mutant ninja who just happened to be a turtle. Because we might just pass the word off to mean, you know, very, very cool. But in reality, that's not it. Now, if you look righteous up in the dictionary, you're going to see that it means being morally right or justifiable. The word righteousness would be the quality of righteous, that you, that you have that quality. And then that word justifiable, that means being declared righteous before God, being made right in God's eyes. This word is definitely a courtroom term. There's no doubt about that. And it's obviously a courtroom term because Jesus is using it in a courtroom setting. So the word righteous is all throughout the Bible. It's everywhere. But the first time we see it is actually found in Genesis chapter 7 and verse 1, which is the story of Noah. And the story of Noah is actually a story of righteousness. Since the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, the word righteous here in the Hebrew is the word sadiq. And that word sadiq means just, right, or correct. Now, sadiq comes from a Greek root word or a Hebrew root word, which is sadiq. And that word means, it literally means to acquit. So, like I said, the word righteous is very much a courtroom term. It's a judicial word. So that's why it fits so well with Jesus' story. Because if someone has been charged with a crime and they go before the judge for justice, at the end of that, there's a trial and a judgment. If the defendant is found innocent, then that defendant would be acquitted of the charge. He or she is found not guilty. The defendant comes out clean of any wrongdoing. The defendant is not wrong. He or she is right. Right in the judge's eyes. Righteous. Now, back to Noah. If we just take a step back in chapter 6 from 7, we see that the world at this point had pretty much gone to pot. Now, you think the day and time that we live in right now is pretty bad, and it is not great. This situation was actually way worse. I have seen and heard people over the years from generation to generation say things that, like that Jesus must be coming back soon. Why? Because of the horrid shape of our world. But in Noah's time, I mean, it really was bad. And it had gotten so bad that God had actually come to the point where he wished that he hadn't even created humans in the first place. Now, that's pretty bad. But in the mix of the whole population of earth, of all the people who are constantly thinking of evil things, for all the people who are doing their own thing, 
there was one single shining light, Noah. His life was singled out mainly for one reason, because he quote-unquote walked with God. He was different from every other man on the whole planet because of his relationship with God, because he actually had one. And so in chapter 7 then, in verse 1, where we see the word righteous, after Noah had built the ark and just before the water was about to flood everything, God said to him this, he says, Enter the ark, you and all your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous. In other words, God declared Noah to be clean, to be free of guilt. This does not mean that Noah did not make mistakes. Of course he did. It does not mean that he was absolutely perfect in every way. Far from it. But because of the relationship that he had together with God, because Noah chose to walk with God in life, to do things God's way, to to allow him to be the Lord, that Lord or the judge, he acquitted Noah of any guilt and he allowed him to board the ark to save his life and the life of his family. He was not invited into the ark because he had it all together. He was invited in spite of his imperfections. God invited Noah and his family because they had a relationship which led God to declare Noah as not guilty because Noah walked with him. You know, what an incredible thing to hear. I have seen you to be righteous. Basically, God is telling us that if we would be willing to enter into an intimate relationship with him, to trust him with faith, which means a deeper knowing, knowing that his ways are better than ours and that we come to trust him so much that we actually live like that, doing what God wants, how he wants, and when he wants through our lives, then we can be declared innocent and we can live like that. It doesn't mean that we don't make mistakes. We do and we will. And it doesn't mean that we're perfect because we're not at all. But what it means is that God will cover our faults. He will go the extra mile to to make things complete and good and clean and right. He will clear the debt. Being declared righteous is being declared innocent in God's eyes. And what an incredible thing to hear. In 1975 in Cleveland, Ohio, a convenience store worker was robbed at gunpoint. He, he had acid thrown in his face and he was beaten with clubs severely. And then he was shot multiple times to his death. Soon after, Ricky Jackson, an 18-year-old kid, and his two good friends, Wiley and Ronnie Bridgman, they were arrested for the murder. They went to trial, and on the witness account of a 12-year-old boy, they were charged with the crime and sentenced to die by way of the electric chair. So at 18 years old, Ricky went to death row for a crime that he actually did not commit. Just two years later, Ricky's sentence was actually adjusted to life in prison because of some technicality. But for 39 years, 39 years, Ricky lived a life in prison knowing that he was wrongfully convicted. He knew that he was innocent. 
And after several attempts to prove that over the years, a break finally came in. Came from the same 12-year-old witness from 39 years ago. After all those years, he came forward to rescind his testimony, and he had said that he was coerced into making it by the police all those years back. So finally, in 2014, Ricky Jackson was set free. He recalled his justice as a, quote, rebirth. Ricky was set free because he was actually innocent. I think how sweet it should be for someone guilty to hear the words you're clean. For some of this, those words just don't sink in for some reason. They don't seem to make a lasting effect. And we call those people self-righteous because they are right in their own eyes. And going back to the debtor in Jesus' story who the king had pardoned, I mean, he felt amazing after he got that pardon. I mean, he felt wonderful, but not for the right reason. He felt great because he didn't have to make payments the rest of his life. He felt great because he wasn't sitting in jail at that very moment. This was an experience that should have changed his life, but it just didn't. It's as if he felt that he had kind of gotten himself out of this dilemma. He had kind of dodged the bullet or... He had worked his magic and gotten out of it, as if he had made himself right, which also means that he just really wasn't truly sorry for his debt. Because immediately after he walks out of the king's palace, I mean, just moments after being released from owing almost a million bucks, being seen as righteous in the, in the king's eyes, he runs into a man, possibly a neighbor, possibly family, and this man actually owes him money. And the debt was 100 denarii, or 100 days' wages. So, using that same calculation from earlier, in our world today, that would be right around $16,000. Now, that's actually quite a lot of money. I mean, it's definitely not a million bucks, but, I mean, that's a considerable amount. So this man begs, and he pleads, and he throws himself at the mercy of this, of this friend, possibly, And he promises, somehow, I will pay this back. I don't know how, but I will. But the newly justified man, he loses his temper and he loses his patience. And he beats this guy up and he calls the police and has him thrown into jail. Unfortunately for this guy, the king would hear word of this. And he calls him back into the palace in front of him. The king cannot believe what he's hearing. And he says this, You evil servant, I forgave your entire debt when you begged me for mercy. But shouldn't you be compelled to be merciful to your fellow servant who asked for mercy too? It's almost like he's saying, What, are you a monster? Are you, are you unhuman? You have no feelings whatsoever? The king can't believe it. So he throws this guy into jail, and he reinstates his debt. For those of us who have read the Bible or we read the Bible on a daily basis, for those of us who go to church, for those of us who claim to know God, for those of us who have used this word righteous before, we have a serious responsibility to mean what we say. 
especially when we utter words like the word righteous out of our mouths. Because like in Titus 3, 5, the judge saved us not because of our righteousness, of righteousness we already had, not because we were right. We weren't. We were wrong. God's actions and judgments of acquittal, they have absolutely nothing to do with who deserves it. Because here's, here's a shocker for you. No one does. Paul makes it pretty darn clear in his letter to those Christians living in Galatia in, in chapter 3 that we don't live according to the Old Testament law anymore. We're only made righteous or right by faith. And what is faith? It's that knowing deeper of God, that, that, that deep, intimate knowing. Not knowing about him, but knowing him, an intimate relationship, which is a life of walking with him, just like Noah. Being declared right by God, that should like change us. Like It should have a radical effect on our lives. Those words should reach down to the core of who we are and transform us into mercy people. But it only does so for those who recognize that they are actually guilty, those who are not self-righteous. So, the answer to the disciples' question initially, who is great? Jesus told this story as an answer, and the answer is those who God sees as great or important or those who possess the qualities that God is looking for in his kingdom. It's those who know they're guilty. They know they're guilty, and they appreciate being made right so much that they're ready to forgive others and ready every minute of every day to live a life with God of mercy. They truly understand the meaning of acquittal because it's personal. No human being in the history of life on this planet can attain righteousness on his or her own. Righteousness or to make it as clear as possible, being acquitted of wrong or being made right in God's eyes only comes from the judge. And it only comes and is lived out by walking with God every day in an intimate relationship with him. He's the only one who can make that judgment. So instead of using churchy words lightly, next time we think of or speak this word righteous or we see it, Allow the real meaning of that to sink in deeper than it ever has before. Let it saturate your whole being so much that it actually changes you. Allow that unbelievable and yet beautiful fact of God's love transform you into a person of great mercy for the world around you. That's what being a walker with God actually looks like. If we claim to walk with him, but yet we haven't changed a bit, Have we really been walking with him? I mean, if there isn't any change in our lives, if our lives don't look any different from anyone else in the world, wouldn't you say that it's pretty obvious that we're not living like we've been declared righteous? That's self-righteous, and the world is already full of those. It's time to start to be willing to rethink, research, and rediscover the depths of this relationship the truths of God, the life of Jesus, and the purpose of the ecclesia, which is us. You can't just go to church and listen to the sermon and walk away saying, hey, well, that's great, because that's that's just not nearly enough. Take a hold of this faith in God, the life we walk with him, with both hands and make it your own. 
Don't even take my word for it. Investigate God on your own and get to know him on a much deeper level. But just remember this, that it all starts with a willing spirit to stop and think.